Our Father, we understand that because You are infinite and we are finite, even in glory when our minds are opened, well beyond what we have ability to grasp now, we will never be able to plumb the depths of Your grandeur. That's good news for us today. Because the things that we understand in this world are tempting us towards discouragement and despondency. And we need something that is higher and mightier than our minds. We need something that is higher and mightier than the best medical minds. We need something higher and mightier that is greater than the best political minds. We need a God who is transcendent and who is worthy of worship. And in this short verse, we have an infinite weight of glory and an exceedingly transcendent God before us. Mike, our consideration of this passage Lead us to delight in You, to confidence in You, and to hopefulness in living in this coming week. Would it also, our Father, make us bold with the Gospel so that as we see Your imminence, Your greatness, Your unfathomable nature, that it would give us delight and joy and confidence to point people to You as we interact with them this week. Our mouths may be covered with masks, but that is not precluding us from sharing the good news of who You are. We can still speak. And so would You give us confidence in You this morning that we will be bold to speak for You in the coming week. We pray in Christ's name for His glory. Amen. In an article entitled, How Big is God? David Coppage, a scientist with a jet propulsion laboratory, writes that a manned flight that goes from Earth to Pluto at the maximum speed of Apollo astronauts would take 17 years before it could park itself at the Pluto Interplanetary Airport. As far away as Pluto is, some 17 years by the fastest ability of mankind to fly, if the distance between the sun and Pluto is measured and equated to a foot-long ruler, the distance to the nearest star from the Earth is over one mile away. It is more than 5,000 times the distance between here and Pluto. Coppage writes, Further, if our galaxy were represented as the size of North America, our entire solar system would fit in a coffee cup somewhere in Idaho. Astronomers, he says, estimate that there are as many galaxies outside the Milky Way as there are stars in it. The Hubble Extra extra Deep Field, taken in 2004, imaged 10,000 galaxies on a cone of space so slim that if you held out your arm and put a grain of sand on your finger, that grain of sand would cover 10,000 galaxies. And that means that there are, Coppage writes, a hundred million galaxies in the visible universe, many with more than a hundred billion stars each. It, it, it is beyond our comprehension, isn't it? And yet, as Coppage notes, God gives names to all of them. The vastness of God is incomprehensible. A reasonable question then is, how do you synthesize God? 
How do you summarize the infinite? How do you condense the actions of God into a book or a chapter or a paragraph? And Paul actually finds a way to speak about the nature of God in a very concise sentence. Verse 36, Romans 11. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Those simple three prepositional statements provide a framework for an understanding of our infinite God. As Paul concludes his explanation of all the doctrinal statements that he has laid out before us in Romans 1 through 11, he explodes in a benediction of praise in verses 33 to 36 that we have summarized this way. Let the revelation of God's salvation lead you to praise God or to delight in God. As we consider the nature of God's salvation and what He has unfolded to us, that should drive us to worship of Him. Last week we noted that verses 33 to 36 are likely a hymn that the Apostle Paul penned. And he wrote it in four parts, an exclamation, a question, an affirmation, and an ascription. And this morning we want to look more carefully at the last two parts of that song, considering together the character of God that makes him praiseworthy. What is it about God that makes him praiseworthy? And we want to consider two things particularly. Because God is God. What, what is God like? What is the nature of God? And what is the character of God? Notice verse 36. He says, from him, through him, and to him are all things. When, when the Apostle Paul says all things are related to God in these ways. What does he mean by that? He means all things that are consistent with his nature and his character. All things does have a limitation. It does have the limitation that God is not the originator of sin. All sin, 1 John 3, 8 tells us, is satanic. And he certainly is not the originator of temptation to sin. He does not originate sin, he does not tempt us to sin, but all other parts of the created universe are part of all things. John Calvin is exactly right when he says, there is not an atom of the universe in which you cannot see some brilliant sparks at least of his glory. Every atom of the universe declares, shouts, magnifies God's glory. But he's not just talking about the created universe. He is also talking about the created spiritual universe. That all salvation is from him. And we have seen that particularly in chapters 9 to 11 of Romans. That God is sovereign over salvation, producing salvation in all those who are saved. That man is incapable of saving himself and that salvation is only from God. Remember, this is even at the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 16. The theme of the book, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is God's power that brings salvation. It is God alone who redeems. Chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is only God's gift. It is only God's salvation. And everyone who is saved comes to salvation by God's choice. Chapter 9, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. It is His mercy, His grace alone that produces salvation. All these things, the Apostle says, are from God. Who is this God? He is the God who is the source of all things. All things, the Apostle says, verse 36, are from Him. He is the source of every single thing that is in existence. There is nothing that exists anywhere in any part of creation that does not originate from Him. And so we, we understand that everything in creation exists because of Him. There was a time when God existed in eternity past, when nothing else existed, that He he in the eternal past always had existed and there was nothing else that existed. And then He spoke. 
And everything came into existence. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, when time began, it was God who began time and God who began creation. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. When I consider the vastness of the heavens, that that very small little description that I alluded to at the beginning of the service and and, and the psalmist says, it's just the work of your fingers. It's like a child playing and you just threw it out there and it was. Isaiah 44 verse 24, thus says the Lord your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. It's, it's no one else that comes alongside God and says, let me help you with this creative aspect. It's, it's the heavens as grand and as vast and wondrous as they are, and it is narrow as each individual person, God has made it all without the help from anyone. John chapter 1, all things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so because God has created all things, John writes in Revelation chapter 4, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. There's, there's nothing anywhere that ever exists without the hand of God behind it. Everything in creation exists because of Him. Further. Not only is God the source of everything in the created world, but God is also the source of the, the new, newly created world. That is, that is everything in the new creation, everything in salvation exists because of Him. In other words, no one is saved apart from Him. Again, John chapter 1 verse 16, and of His fullness, Of Christ's fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. Again, John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If anyone in the world will ever be forgiven of sin, it is only through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that he will have that sin removed. Titus chapter 1 verse 2, In hope of the eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before God began. Not only does God save us, but the plan of salvation, Titus says in chapter 1, is an eternal plan one that began before time began, that was always in God's mind in the eternal past. First Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's only through Jesus Christ being resurrected that any man has life and it is abundant mercy from God that saves and redeems us. And we've seen this theme all the way through the book of Romans, haven't we? And I won't recount everything, but let me just highlight a couple of verses. Romans 5.21 As sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So so under death in Adam, we were bound to Adam. We had no life. We were absolutely dead in those sins. And in the same way that we were dead in Adam, we are alive in Jesus Christ to the point of eternal satisfying life. 
Chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore we were buried with Him through Christ, through baptism, into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the, by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. So the same kind of resurrection power by God that raised Christ from the dead raises us to life as well. Oh, wretched man that I am, 724, Who will deliver me from this body of death? You ever feel that way? Where is salvation? Who will redeem me? Who will save me? Who will liberate me from this Adamic death and from the flesh? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is our Redeemer. If we're going to have life, it is only through Jesus Christ. And and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Friends, God alone is the source of salvation. There is salvation in no one else. Nothing else will ever provide spiritual life, spiritual hope, spiritual salvation. And Paul's emphasis in saying all of these things, particularly in these chapters that we've been looking at, chapters 9 through 11, the last few months, is designed to keep men humble so that we don't exalt ourselves. Chapter 9, verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? It's his prerogative. It's his salvation. It's his sovereignty. He has authority over all of it to accomplish His divine purposes. Chapter 10, verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead? Who are you to try and accomplish salvation on your own? You can't do it. You won't do it. It is apart from you. Chapter 11, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches, towards the nation of Israel. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You are never to take pride in your own salvation for your own accomplishments and what you have done. It is always only because of God and how he has saved you. And in chapter 11, how he has brought you into the promises that he gave to Israel. It is his salvation. It is his work. It is his accomplishment alone. We dare not be proud because God is the source of all things. God is also the sustainer of all things. All things are, notice our text, through Him. That is, He keeps all things in the world and in the spiritual world moving just the way He intends it to go and be. He is the means by which all things are upheld. And by that we mean that all things in the created world are upheld by Him and under His sovereign authority. So, Acts chapter 17, verse 28, In Him we live and move and have our being, Paul says to uh, on Mars Hill to um, his Greek audience there. In Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. If you move this morning, some of you might be questionable, but if you move this morning, if you spoke this morning, if you breathe this morning, it's His doing. It's His equipping. It's His sustaining. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. That is, if there is anything that continues in life, it is only because He has continued to sustain it. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power. He simply speaks... And it not only exists, but it is sustained. It is as simple as Him merely uttering a word, and it is upheld 
everything in the created universe. Not only created things, but listen to what Proverbs says, 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, everything that happens in this world, every decision that is made, every, every intention of men's hearts is underneath the sovereign hand of God's control. He controls everything in the created universe. Further, everything in the new creation continues in salvation and is kept in salvation by Him. So Philippians chapter 1, being confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Not only has God saved us in salvation, but He will further our salvation, continue our salvation, complete our salvation, and bring our salvation to its end. First Peter chapter 1, perhaps some of my very favorite verses in Scripture. He has saved us to an inheritance, incorruptible, verse 4, and undefiled, and that does not fade away. Listen. It is reserved in heaven for you, not by you, but for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That, that entire pair of verses focuses completely on God's sustaining power over our salvation. Once we are in that salvation, He perpetuates that salvation and keeps us in that salvation. And we've seen these things all the way through the book of Romans as well. Again, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we not only had peace, but we have an ongoing perpetual peace. Romans eight twenty nine and 30, Whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called, and whom He called, these He also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. If you start in that chain of justification, you will end in that chain of glorification. He is saving, preserving, keeping. Chapter 11, verse 29, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be turned back. They cannot be changed. They cannot be remitted. They are perpetual. God is the source of all things. God is the sustainer of all things. God is also the goal of all things. All things, Paul says, are to Him. All things are created for Him. All things are created for His pleasure. All things are created for His exaltation. All things in creation reveal His character and His nature. Creation is a canvas on which God paints His glory and says, this is what I am like. He creates it so that, so that people will see His likeness and His nature. Philippians, excuse me, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. In fact, the first opening six verses of that psalm repeatedly demonstrate the greatness and the grandeur of of God's nature and God's glory. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, For since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So that, so that God's creation demonstrates to man, it's not about you, it's about the one who has created you. Even their own consciences of every man point to the nature of God and reveals His glory. Chapter 2, verse 14 of Romans, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things of the law, these, although not having a law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts. In a sense, God is speaking to them by their own consciences, their conscience bearing witness between themselves and their thoughts, accusing or excusing them. 
the conscience of every man, the mind of every man, is a declaration that He exists for God. All things in creation reveal God's nature, reveal God's character. And all things in the new creation reveal His nature and character. Why does God forgive us? Psalm 25:11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Why does He forgive us? For a declaration of the greatness of His name. Psalm 79:9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. Twice in that one verse, he says, my forgiveness is about your glory. God's, God puts his glory on display through the forgiveness of our sins. Psalm 109 verse 21, you, O God, the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake because your mercy is good. Deliver me. Show me your mercy as a declaration of your glory and your magnificence. God puts His glory on display through our salvation. Why does God save us and keep us? Yes, He saves us and keeps us so that we can receive adoption and blessing and hope. But ultimately, our salvation is not about us. Our salvation doesn't terminate on us. Our salvation is not ultimate. Our salvation is penultimate. What is ultimate is the glory of God. It is for Him. And since God is the source and the sustainer and the goal of all things as we have seen in this verse, what's the benefit of that to us? Listen to what Puritan George Swinnock says. God is everything. If He is yours, nothing can hurt you. If He is yours, everything will help you. If He is yours, you have everything you need. He is adequate for you. And further, this this keeps us from ungodly, foolish pride. It keeps us from presuming a position on earth or in heaven that does not belong to us. Remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar? The king spoke, Daniel 4.30, saying, Is this not great Babylon that I have have built for a royal dwelling by my power and for the honor of my majesty? And then God spoke. And he spent seven years living like a beast of the field. Oh, friends, it's not about us. It's about him. Friday afternoon, Regine and I went to Fort Worth. We had to get out of the county for at least a few minutes. And so we went to Fort Worth and ran a few errands and picked up a few things. And then we went to a restaurant and uh, we're enjoying a dinner together. And while we were sitting there, a young family came in, mom, dad, two, two little girls, about, I don't know, somewhere between two and three years of age, maybe. Maybe twins because they looked about the same size. And they were sitting there and just watching them interact. And it was just so much fun. Regina and I just almost couldn't keep our eyes off them because we just haven't seen a whole lot of kids lately. And so it was just fun watching that family interact together. And uh, then their name was called and they, they brought their food to the table. And, and Dad had no sooner sat down at that table when one of the little girls started reaching out like this, To me! To me! To me, to me, to me, to me. She said to me like a dozen times, to me. And you just couldn't help but laugh. And then I thought, isn't that a picture of our age? It's all about me. Everything comes to me. Everything is for me. Everything is provided for me. Everything is for my exaltation. No, friends, it's not for me. Oh, yes, we benefit. We benefit tremendously and greatly. But it is for Him. Everything that God does in this universe is under His authority and under His command. And it is to exalt Him as the ultimate in all of creation and in all of the world. 
Because God is God, give Him glory. Because God is God, give Him glory. Paul not only reveals the greatness of God, but with these three short prepositional phrases, he also finishes where all good theology finishes. He worships God. Theology is not just designed to inform our minds. Theology is given to us to drive us to worship. And that is exactly where the Apostle Paul finishes. Bible intake, friends, should end in God exaltation. A consideration of God should result in us making much of God. Listen to what Puritan Stephen Charnock says. To pretend homage to God and intend only the advantage to myself is rather to mock God than to worship Him. When we believe we ought to be satisfied rather than God glorified, we set God below ourselves and imagine that He should submit His own honor to our advantages. And this is why the Apostle says, because all things are from Him and through Him and to Him, He culminates in worship by saying, to Him be the glory forever. He deserves glory forever. What is God's glory? God's glory is the central theme in all of the Scriptures It is the dominating truth that ties all of the Scriptures together. It is it is the ultimate truth about the nature of God, the character of God, and the thing to which all things are pointed. That being said, we can summarize God's glory this way. God's glory is the fullness of all that He is. The Old Testament word glory is a word that means heavy or weightiness. And it suggests that God is weightier than any other created being, any other thing, any other person. And because He is weighty, He is magnificent, majestic, glorious. And friends, note this, that the glory of God is not something that we give to Him. Yes, we should honor Him as being glorious, But by doing that, we are not adding something to Him. His glory is intrinsic to Him. It is internal to Him. One writer says it this way, It is the excellency of His divine nature. God is glorious internally according to His own knowledge, love, and delight in Himself. So God's glory is the fullness of all that He is. And God's glory is also the revelation of all that He is. So He is not only internally glorious, but He has put that glory on display, which is the purpose of both creation and the new creation. So where have we seen God's glory? Oh, Just everywhere. It's in the sky and the stars. It's in the mountains and the ocean. It's in the diversity of people. It's in the creative ability of mankind. I mean, think, think about the building that we're sitting in now. I was here when, when these beams were put up. And you think about, you think about construction. Even just a few centuries ago, how there was no ability to have a freestanding space without columns. Friends, those, those steel beams are the glory of God, evidenced through the creative, scientific mind of man. It's in, it's in His walking with Adam and Eve. His glory is revealed when He speaks to Moses in the burning bush and to Job from the whirlwind. His glory is revealed in His vision to Isaiah and to John. But friends, God's glory is most revealed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Do you want to see God's glory in its greatest fullness? Look at His greatest humility. For when God humbles Himself... 
to add flesh to his deity in the person of Jesus Christ. And not only adds flesh, but then goes to the cross in the most ignominious death and suffers death and pays the debt of all our sin, though he himself is sinless. That is the greatest demonstration of his glory. I want you to see one other thread of God's glory in Scripture. Remember when the nation of Israel had left Egypt and they're headed out of Egypt and uh, they're not sure where to go and God says, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to lead you by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. And so he led them across the Dead Sea and into the wilderness and away from Egypt. And then in Exodus chapter 40, after the tabernacle is finished being completed, listen to what it says. And he, Moses, raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the gate, court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All that God is in all of His transcendence and might and power and authority is located in time and space at the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle for the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and fire was over it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The the nation of Israel saw God's glory evidenced in that cloud and fire every day. And then they came into the land of Canaan And they set up there in God's place for His people and they erected a temple. 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 6. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So now the cloud and the glory of God moves from the tabernacle and into the temple so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Solomon spoke. The Lord said that He would dwell in the dark cloud and I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. And there, God's glory resided for the nation of Israel, a sign that He was with them. The the omnipotent, omniscient God of all creation, who is sovereign over all things, who is above all things and for all things, He was there with them. Listen to what Ezekiel the prophet writes. Ezekiel chapter 10. He saw a vision. And I looked. And there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim. There appeared something like a sapphire stone. Having the appearance of the likeness of the throne. And then the glory of the Lord. Went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple and the house was filled with a cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of God's glory. God's glory is lifting up out of the Holy of Holies. Verse 18 And the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple And stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. And when they went out, the wheels were beside them. 
And they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the Lord was above them. It's as if the Lord on his way out of the temple stops at the last gate and pauses and waits. Chapter 11. And the cherubim, verse 22, lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. And the glory of the Lord of the God of Israel hovered over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. Comes out of the Holy of Holies and moves to the last gate into the temple and moves out of the gate to the last part of the city and then moves out of the city to the Mount of Olives. And the glory of God is gone. Can you imagine the devastation of Ezekiel and the others as they considered the departure of God's glory? And then an angel appears centuries later and says, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The glory's coming back. And he was born and suddenly there was an an angel with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying what? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. John tells us in chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld what? His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has explained Him. He has revealed Him. The glory is back. And then... Acts chapter 1, when he had spoken to the disciples while they watched, reminiscent of the the vision in Ezekiel, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And before the disciples have an opportunity to feel the devastation of the absence of God's glory, they're looking steadfastly towards heaven as he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has taken you up, in, taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. In another of my favorite passages of Scripture, Zechariah chapter 14, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when spoil will be taken from you and will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured and houses plundered and women ravished and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. The place from which the glory of God departed in Ezekiel, the place from which Christ departed when he was on earth, he will come again And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a large valley so that half the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. The king is back in all his glory and he will rule for all eternity. Everything that God is is revealed in Jesus Christ 
And he's coming back for us, for a demonstration of his glory. So when Paul says, to God be the glory, he is seeing the fulfillment of all God's promises to his people. And he is recognizing that God has done supremely what only God can do. So he explodes in praise. What does it mean to glorify God? To glorify God simply means that we reveal God for who He is. We're exposing the nature of God and telling others of Him. To say to God be the glory is simply to say we're living for Him. We are by our actions, by every word, by every intention, by every decision, by every heart motive. We are saying this is what God is like. And we are putting on display for the world. Look at what God is like. And you can see something of what God is like by looking at me and my life. But not only... Not only are we revealing this is the nature of God, to glorify God is to take delight in God, to treasure Him, to value Him. So when we say we glorify God by our actions, we say this is what God is like. And by the way, I love the way God is. I love His commands in my life. I love how He directs me. And notice that the Apostle says, we do this forever. This is not something that is our task today, but to live to the glory of God is our forever task. It is our eternal task. It is something that has begun at salvation. It has continued through our lives. It has culminated in eternity, which is to say that it goes on for all eternity. We perpetually live for Him. And to glorify God is to affirm what believers have always said about Him. Notice the very last word in this verse. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. And amen isn't just a period. Amen is a word that means truly, verily, let it be so. And it is what... It is what believers in God have always done when they are affirming a truth of Scripture. And so when we say to Him be the glory forever, Amen, we are affirming with all of God's people throughout all of history that this is true, that we want His glory above all else. We live for His glory. But if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are not glorifying Him. You are not doing what you were created to do. And He will hold you accountable for that day. The wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. And the essence of sin is to refuse to live for God's glory And instead to attempt to live for my own glory and my own exaltation. But friends, God has come near in Jesus Christ. He has revealed His greatness through the humility of the cross. He has made salvation available to Jew and Gentile alike. And if you confess and believe, you will be saved. For with a heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with a mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. If you repent of not living for God's glory today, you will be saved. Oh friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, will you repent? And will you start to live for His glory today? It is the only thing for which you were created to live for His glory That leads us to the final question. Why should we glorify God? Because only He's worthy. There's no one else like Him. Of what else can you say in creation that it exists for Him and through Him and to Him? 
We should glorify Him because He is singularly unique. And I know that's repetitive, but it's true. There is none else like Him. And we should glorify God further because it demonstrates to others that He is our treasure. And we should glorify God because not glorifying God is the most basic act of rebellion against God. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, His glory is put on display and those who rejected Him refused to glorify Him and refused to give thanks. We should glorify God because that is what we are created to do and there is nothing greater that we might do in response to who He is and the greatness of what He has done for us. Let us avoid the tragedy denoted by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. That's her way of saying everywhere you look on this planet, you see the transcendent glory of God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. A wasted life. Oh friend, God has revealed His magnificence to us. Let us live for that glory and let us live by that glory. Our Father, we thank You for this simple verse and the attempt we have made this morning to unpack as much as our finite minds can understand these infinite truths. We look forward to the day when our minds will be opened in far greater understanding. And we look forward to a time when we will enter eternity and you will unfold for us, as it were, day by day, all of the riches of your glory and never exhaust the treasure of your wonder. And Father, while we look forward for that day, we thank You for this day where we can understand something of Your magnificence and that we can live in some way for Your magnificence. So might the things that we do this day, the way we relate to people in this world this week, demonstrate that You are our treasure, not to this world And that we might point people to the greatness of you as the treasure. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.